going to read the text. We're in Romans chapter 9. I'm going to read it first and kind of go backwards and try to unpack it as faithfully as possible. Romans chapter 9, verse 1, the Apostle Paul, after a long line of argumentation, here's the word of God. I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. But it is not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. And not all are children of Abraham because there is offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God. But the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said. And about this time next year I will return and Sarah shall have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac... Though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. She was told, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I hated. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills and he hardens whomever he wills. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you? Oh man, to answer back to God. Well, what is molded say to its molder? You have no right. Oh, sorry. What, well, what is molded say to its molder? Why have you made me like this? Has the, has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand, for glory, even us, whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. And thus far, that's the reading of God's word. Powerful passage and significant, and it comes with weight, and it comes with all kinds of questions. This passage has been um, a, a position or a place, a leaping off point for people to either leap off into um, praise to God that is difficult to comprehend and awe of God. It's been a passage that leads people into deeper worship and it's also been a passage that has been evaded, that has been avoided and has caused many people who professed believers in Christ to leap off in the other direction, away from God. Many people have professed praise to God because of this, pra this passage and many have abandoned Christ because of what's said about God in this passage. This is a meaty passage and necessary listen 
If you were here a couple weeks ago when we started this passage to do an overview, I told you that this is a necessary part of the book of Romans. Listen, if this part of the book of Romans was not in this book, you would have cause to question this whole thing about Yeshua as Mashiach, Jesus as Messiah. This is a, is a position in the book of Romans that begins to answer some fundamentally important questions about God keeping his promise or not. You see, when we think about the book of Romans, as you lead all the way up into Romans chapter 8, we spent significant time in Romans chapter 8, and rightfully so, and it's a good thing. Go back and listen to those messages. That is one, it's the heartbeat of our church. Romans chapter 8, all these blessings of God, where it talks about God who foreknows us. He chooses to enter into intimate relationship with us. He predestines us. He calls us. He justifies us. He glorifies us. Listen, this beautiful golden chain of redemption comes with all these beautiful promises. Things like, if God is for us, who could be against us, right? I mean, that's awesome. It's God who's behind all this. God doesn't act as your prosecutor in this whole situation. God is acting as your vindicator in this whole plan of redemption. The promises in Romans 8, Romans chapter 8 about God. Uh, who can bring any charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one that's going to condemn? Jesus died. He raised and he was seated now at the right hand of the Father who lives forever to make intercession for us. These promises are significant. They're weighty. They are universe-shattering, worldview-collapsing. They will transform your life. And then you have the promise that's quoted. I hope you know it. I hope you know it by heart. If you don't, make it a point tonight to write it down and not go to bed until you memorize the passage. Many of you already have it memorized. And if you haven't, I would encourage you to get it in your hearts because I promise you, you will need it. The hospital is coming up for some of us. Cancer is on the horizon for some of us. Tribulations and trials, they're on the horizon for some of us. All of us for suffering in this world, right? There's a passage in Romans 8 that says that God causes all things, what? To work together for good to those who love Him, those who are called according to His purpose. Now listen to me, and when I say this to you, if you grab those promises from Romans chapter 8, about foreknowledge, about predestination, about calling, about justifying, about glorifying, about God being for you, about God justifying you, no charges being ever brought against you, not ever, about a God who causes all things to work together for good. That's a mighty God. That's a huge God. That's a God that's contrary to every man-made religious conception of God. You can imagine most religious conceptions of God, they look like you, like us. Because it's people trying to make gods in their image. This God of this revelation, not like us. He is transcendent. He is incomprehensible. And he makes promises. Think about it. Your Bible opens up. Promises. Genesis chapter 3. Fall breaks in. God promises Messiah through the woman's seed. Going to crush the head of the serpents. Be wounded in the process. God promises redemption. He comes into a plan of redemption and covenant with Abraham all the way through Isaac. And it goes into the children of Israel. All these blessings, all these promises to Romans chapter 8. And you say, whoa, it ends with this significant, this magnificent, beautiful portrayal of the love of God, which you will never be separated from. Not ever. Not under any circumstance. And every Christian in this room that was here with us, through Romans 8, I hope it transformed your life. I hope it got you on your way to seeing God in a bigger way. 
I hope it got you on your way to be able to see God as he is and that you are transformed by it and you're continually being transformed by it. Listen, you have to hook into that. But let me just say this to you. Romans chapter 8 is bankrupt without Romans chapter 9. It doesn't mean a lot to us today, particularly for those of us that are brand new believers. And I wasn't raised in a Christian home. I got to admit, this stuff was foreign to me. My, my question, Abraham, I'm like, who's Abraham? Moses. Who's Moses? Right? That, those are the questions that I'm asking. Like, what did he do? What's he all about? What's this jazz about covenant and all this stuff about Isaac and creation? Like, what does that mean? I don't know what that means. So it's not significant to us, but let me just tell you right now, when you look at the whole picture of God's revelation, this is significant. You need to understand, if you want to hook into the promises of Romans chapter 8, you better have Romans chapter 9. You have to have it, because this is Paul answering a very serious charge. And what is it? Listen, you're in the first century. You're a Jewish person turned to Christ, or a Gentile who believes in a Jewish Messiah. And now you're hooking up Jews and Gentiles together in one body. And the Jewish people who are not trusting in Jesus are off to the side looking in going, uh, that's a weird little gathering right there. And you know what? You guys aren't real Jews. You're not real Jews because guess what you're not doing now? How come you're not doing temple sacrifices? How come you're not, you know, doing the Yom Kippur, day of the priesthood stuff? What, what? Come back to temple, guys. It's a sham. It's fake. Yeshua is not Mashiach. And there's riots busting up all over. And to where Claudius actually in the early 50s says, what, Jews, you guys are going to fight over this Christ? Get out. Whether you believe in Jesus or not, get out. And so Romans is written in that context. There is serious scuffle going on between Jewish believers in Jesus as Mashiach and Jewish believers who reject Jesus. And there's a significant problem here. And what is that? These early Christians who are Jews that believe in Jesus as Mashiach are saying, come on, what's going on? Like, he's the real Messiah. He is the real Messiah. He really satisfied the wrath of God. We don't need to do the temple sacrifices. He's a priest forever. He's a better prophet. He's a better priest. He's a better king. And he lives forever to make intercession for us. I'm not going back to that earthly priest who's a sinner who dies. No way. But still, there's a significant problem. Because what's the deal? Because people could look in on this and they could say, well, okay, so what are you saying now? Jesus is Messiah. And now this plan is over here now. It's in this way. What about these Jews? They don't believe in Jesus. What happened to them? I thought God keeps his promises. Didn't God say that through Isaac, through this seed, God was going to bless the world? What about these Jews over here? You get this small little remnant of Jews who believe in this Jewish Messiah, Jesus, over here. And all these Jews over here that don't. And it creates a significant problem. A very significant problem that doesn't seem very weighty to us. But it's significant because if you love the promises of Romans chapter 8... You need to have the answer of Romans chapter 9. Because if God's a covenant-keeping God, you've got to ask the question, what's up with, with, with 80-70? You're like, what's that mean, Pastor Jeff? 70 AD was a significant moment in the history of the world. A significant moment. God promised in the Old Testament that the Messiah was going to come. Daniel chapter 9, he was going to come, make an end of sin, bring reconciliation for iniquity, bring an everlasting righteousness. He was going to be cut off and have nothing. He was going to die a violent death. And then the second Jewish temple was going to be destroyed. That was coming. And the Christians in the first century are living right at the cusp of it. Jesus said, before you all die, that temple is going to be destroyed, not one stone left upon another. And they're at the cusp of it. They're right there on the edge of it. And there's a situation where you've got the old covenant still hanging around 
I can go touch the temple bricks. I can touch it. The priests are still doing their stuff, offering their incense, killing their animals. And these Christians over here are like, no, he's done. It's done. New covenant. It's here, baby. We have salvation forever. We've got the promised Holy Spirit. God indwells this temple, baby. His people, we're together now. So it's a significant moment now. You've got the old covenant running alongside the new covenant, and this old covenant's about to vanish away, and you've got all this, these questions going on. What about those Jews? I thought God keeps his promises. I thought he keeps his promises. What about these over here? So what does he abandon his people? And so Paul enters the discussion now. And he says that I have great anguish or great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. Verse 2 of chapter 9. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. Quick thing I got to touch here. This is so significant and so important. Listen, Romans chapter 9 is such a significant passage about the sovereignty of God. The way that I read it to you is what it says. It's almost like the easiest way to do this. Is God sovereign? Read Romans 9. That's it. So I want to say this, that I would say that Paul is the most hardcore, foaming at the mouth, Calvinist in existence. He's reformed, clearly, right? It's utter sovereignty of God. He mercies whom he wills. He hardens whom he wills. But look what he says. Look what he says. He says, I have unceasing anguish in my heart. And I got to just say, as a quick excursus, we could spend weeks on this, on this part. I believe that it's the, the foundational truths of the sovereignty of God that drive all of missions. If God is not sovereign, why preach the gospel? Because if God tries to save and fails, Jesus dies for sinners and fails, and the Holy Spirit tries to apply salvation and fails over and over and over again, then what's my two cents going to do to the situation? That kind of sovereign God I don't think is worthy of your worship. And I don't believe that missions is driven by a view of God that's thwarted by his creatures. This God, this sovereign God, will give you fire and give you power and boldness for mission in the world because you believe in a God who's sovereign and mighty to save. You see? But look at this. Watch this. People fail to see it all the time. You've got this high view of the sovereignty of God right here in the passage. He mercies whom he wills. He hardens whom he wills. And then Paul says, I have unceasing anguish in my heart. And I got to ask us this probing question for all of us in this room that can get jaded by Christian terminology and and the whole situation of just coming to church and listening to the messages and just kind of going through life. I got to say this to you. Listen, do you really believe that you were dead in sins and trespasses? Do you really believe that you were worthy of the wrath of God, that you were under it and you deserved everything coming to you? Do I really believe that? Do you really believe that you have a solidarity with humanity? That when you look across, you see a person who's alienated from God, that you see the difference between you and them is a five-letter word called grace. And do you, do you have a burden and a longing in your heart that Paul clearly has with an awareness of the sovereignty of God that he has an anguish in his heart for the lost, for those that he's connected to, his kinsmen according to the flesh, the Jews? You see, people say, well, you know, if you believe in the sovereignty of God, why preach the gospel? Well, I say ask Paul that. Why is he so grieved? He clearly believes in a sovereign God, but you see, he still has this anguish in his heart. And notice what he says. Watch this. Your thoughts and my thoughts are fallible, right? Tell me, tell me the truth, right? Don't we deceive ourselves? 
right? Haven't you been engaged in that in your life? Haven't you been engaged in self-deception? Don't we do that all the time? So our thoughts are fallible. But look what he says here. He calls upon God as his witness to this. It's as though he's, he's writing this with an awareness of the Holy Spirit moving this situation on in the scripture. What does he say? He says that the Holy Spirit bears him witness in his conscience that he has an unceasing anguish in his heart. And if you move over to chapter 10, just look over to the page. Chapter 10, look what he says. Brothers, verse 1, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. And I got to say this to you as a church. Listen, I, I, I want to ask you to come to God and ask him to individually, ask him to break your heart. Ask him to break your heart over the lost. You should be asking yourself questions like that. Like, do I, do I have a longing for the lost? Do I have an anguish in my heart for these people? Do I have an anguish in my heart for my person next door to me that doesn't know Christ or my coworker at work or, or, or the community that's around me at large? Do I have an anguish in my heart? And I want to I say this to you. If you don't, I, I, I would come before God and, and, and be broken before him and plead with him to give you this anguish with a high view of the sovereignty of God, but with an anguish for the unbeliever, a brokenness that they need Christ. You should have that. I should have that. Notice what he's saying, that God bears him witness and that his heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they be saved. So quick excursus, how much praying am I doing for the lost? Not enough. Not enough. How about you? How much prayer is, 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 being, is on your heart before God for the lost? Because you see, it's just that means that God uses to bring His grace into their lives. Be praying for the lost. Be, have anguish in our hearts over the lost. People say, just as a personal thing, like, you know, why, why, do you, why, you know, why would you go out? You know, just as an example, one example, because it's, it's happening now, so I'll bring it up. Why would you go to the Mormon temple on Mesa? Why, why would you do that? People will say to me at the temple, they'll say something like, I, I, I've had this so many times. People will come to me and they'll say, don't you have something better to do? Right? Like a hand on the track. They say, don't you, come on, don't you have something better to do? It's Friday and Saturday night. It's Christmas time. Don't you have something better to do? And my answer is, no. Now, yes, I got a wife and four kids and we are freakish about Christmas. <laughs> Right, Jerry? Luke, right? We put up our tree last night. The Holy Spirit bears me witness about that one. And Facebook. Pictures are on Facebook. We love Christmas. And yeah, I love my wife and my kids. And to be honest, um, I want to hang out with them. But you know what I see? I see a community of people who are lost and going to hell. Who need Christ. And you know when they say, don't you have something better to do? In the context of all of eternity, no, I don't. It's your life that means something to me right now. And I'm willing to sacrifice four hours of time with my wife and my kids on a Friday and Saturday night during our favorite time of year to serve you because I care for you and I long for you. And I have an anguish in my heart for the person that's in the LDS church who believes in a false God and a false gospel that needs to be saved. I have an anguish in my heart for them. My heart's desire is that they would be saved. That's why I do what I do, to be honest with you. I don't like to argue on a Friday night. I want to chill, I want to chill like you. I got, you know, in the sense of like more, you know, could I be doing fun, things that are more fun? Hang, yeah. It's not like I, you know, I'm hard up for argumentation. I'm married. 
Just kidding. <laughs> it's because I long for these people. I love these people. And all I want to ask you is this. As a church, listen. Don't become jaded. Don't just coast through this life with Christ. If you find yourself in a place where you're looking at Paul saying, I could wish that I myself would go to hell in their place, and you say to yourself, I don't feel like that, then I'm saying, go seek God's face until you feel like that. Some of you guys, if you think about the people who are in this room right here, just gather together in this place. You know, you look at Pastor Luke's life and my life and playing in this church, and you think about this, this, this anguish in your heart for people. You know, there's, there's times we planted this church. We didn't, we didn't know how we're going to make it. We didn't know how we're going to take care of our, our kids and our families. And as a matter of fact, if you, I had an opportunity where I was actually launching to leave Arizona to go be a pastor of a church in South Carolina of thousands of people. And it was, it, was, it was when I thought I was going to one course and my entire house is boxed up and I have everything boxed up down to the plates and the silverware that God, all of a sudden, I get a phone call and all of a sudden there's this opportunity to go preach the gospel at this little recovery center, you know, in Phoenix that I knew nothing about. And it wasn't like this is a great opportunity here. I'm leaving. And then all of a sudden the opportunity comes in to go preach the gospel. My heart, my, my, my mindset was, hey, Jeff, can you come here and preach the gospel? We lost our pastor. We need someone to preach the gospel for an hour. My mindset was, you mean I can preach the gospel to people who can't leave? Yeah, I'll do that. <laughs> and so I went and preached the gospel. And I see people in front of me look just like me. My longing for them is for them to know Christ. I'm thinking to myself as I'm looking at them, man, these people are, this is me. I'm looking into my own eyes in this place. And I don't know why this is all of a sudden popping up in my life, but I abandoned ship and I dissed the opportunity and threw it away to go, go across country to go preach at a church with like 5,000 plus members with a brand new building that was $30 million. You know, that's where I was going. And, and Luke and I are thinking, we don't know how we're doing this. We don't know what is going on here. I have no, I have no hope for ability to feed my kids, my family. Pastor Luke, we're like, we're just trusting God. God's calling us to do this. We're going to do this. And what was the guiding thing behind all of that was an unceasing anguish in my heart for the lost to know Christ. And you see, that's the driving force behind it. A total trust and commitment to the sovereignty of God and that He mercies whom He mercies and He hardens whom He hardens and that God is in control of all this, but it's also an anguish in your heart for the lost. If you don't have that, you're not going to reach anybody. you got to have that. you got to feel that way about somebody that, listen, this person's salvation, this one person's salvation is worth my whole life. If Paul says he wishes he would go to hell, in some of their places, that if that were even possible, he wishes that upon himself. I wish I would even go to hell in their place. Then you and I have to have the heartbeat about the loss that at least says this. I'm willing to lose my reputation and my life and my view of my career, what's in front of me. You have to at least have that to say, abandon all in hopes of saving this one person. Do you have that kind of anguish in your heart for the lost? Paul says it's as far as going to hell. And to be honest with you, I'm glad you're here. I'm glad this room is full and it's getting fuller all the time because of what God is doing here. Nothing to do with me. I ain't got a thing to do with it. But I got to be honest with you, as much as I love every single one of you, I'd have done it for even one of you. Do you see? So praise God as he keeps bringing more people. But every single one of you are the significant one in this room it was, that it was worth all of this for. So let's go. 
My kinsmen, according to the flesh, they are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs and their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. Here's this prop, prop, prop. Props to the Jews. Props to the nation of Israel. That's what he's doing right here. He's like, you guys got the patriarchs. You got the giving of the law. As a matter of fact, God came into this race. Do you see what I'm saying? And you say, wow, that's significant. Yeah, it's significant. Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 7 says that God chose Israel out of all the nations on the earth to bring his plan in. And it wasn't because they were more numerous or larger or like better in some way. It's because he loved them. You ask, why would he do that? Because he loved them. What's the specific reason as to why he chose Israel? Because he loved them. It's all of his grace. And you think about the blessings of being a Jew. God reveals himself to humanity through this particular people, the Jews. And it wasn't because of them. It's because of his grace and all these promises of having his word. And here's the crazy thing about religion. Um, it's stupid. And also, uh, false gods don't do a lot of talking, right? And so you say like, okay, like, I, I, I want to know what God is like. Well, here's the problem. False gods don't have mouths that speak. They don't reveal themselves. They don't have a volition. They don't have a will. They don't have a love. None of those things. And here, all of a sudden, you've got the God of all the universe who spoke and it leapt into existence. That God condescends, penetrates humanity, and that God reveals himself to people, gives them, gives them his covenant, his law. He tells them what he's like. And the blessing of that, how crazy is that? The God of all the universe reveals himself to this, un- this peculiar people. And this isn't the first time Paul said it. Just take your pa- finger over to the pages of Romans chapter um, 3. And look at verse 1. Then what advantage has the Jew? Or what is the value of circumcision? Much in every way. To begin with, to begin with the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. That's a significant detail. God spoke and he gave the Jews his word. And, he, and, he, and this, this whole covenant was through the Jewish people, the Jewish race. And so Paul is highlighting that. He's like, listen, I wish I would go to hell if it were even possible. I've got this anguish in my heart for these people. And to them, God gave the covenants. God became man through the Jewish race. That's pretty significant. So I'm not, what Paul is doing here is he's not dissing the Jewish people. He's saying, I'm Jewish. I'm Jewish. And this is a huge blessing to be a Jew. But, get ready, here it is. How come so many Jews aren't believing? How, what's with the story with these over here? They're Jewish, right? They, they, they look Jewish, circumcised. They got the law, they're going to temple, all that stuff. What's the deal? What's the deal that God abandoned his promise? Look what he says. Verse 6, but it is not as though the word of God has failed. Because let me tell you right now, are you ready? I told you about Romans 8 and all those promises. Let me tell you right now, it sure looks like it. In the first century, you're there. And you see all these Jews over here that reject Jesus as Messiah. And all these ones over here that believe he's the Messiah. And it sure looks like it. It sure looks like God's word has failed. It definitely appears so on the surface. And Paul says, it's not as though the word of God has failed. He said, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. And not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. 
but through Isaac shall your offspring be named. Now get this. This is so important. Critical. Hang on to this. Very critical. John the Baptist, first century, famous first century figure, comes on the scene. and He's talking to the Jewish leadership of his day. And he says to them, basically, don't brag on the fact that you're Abraham's kids. God can raise up from these rocks heirs of Abraham, which causes that first century Jew to scratch his head. What are you talking about? Like, I got my genealogy going on. I could tell you how I go back to Abraham. And John the Baptist, the forerunner before the Messiah, which was promised in the Old Testament, he says to the Jews of his day, stop bragging in the fact that you are physically descended from the nation of Israel. Just because you have the flesh of a Jew, don't make you Jewish. Not all who are descended from Israel are of Israel. It was through a specific promised seed. You know, Abraham had more kids than Isaac. Who was the first kid on the page? Ishmael. It wasn't Isaac. God says, Abraham, covenant with you. Abraham believes God, credits to him righteousness, promises him what? A son. Who's the son going to be through? Sarah, right? Abraham and Sarah jump the gun. Typical of Christians to go, hey, God's not showing up. And so all of a sudden they go trying to do their own plan over there, right? And God turns back around and goes, nope, we're still doing it my way. Nice try, right? Learn from that lesson. It's a good idea just to sit and wait for a little while. Just chill, be still, know that he's God. Stop trying to do your own thing. And um, so anyway, Ishmael comes on the scene and God says, nope, still Isaac. Ha <laughs> ha, sorry, it's still him, Isaac. And then Sarah has a son. And guess what? Here's Isaac. And here's the thing, watch this. Abraham had other kids. But there was a specific promise through Isaac. So watch this. It wasn't that you were physically from Abraham that made you a Jew, made you an Israelite. It's that you were part of this covenant promise and blessing through Isaac. Check it out. For those of you that are new, Abraham had Ishmael and other kids, but it was through Isaac with Sarah that the promise to bless the whole world, the Messiah was going to come in, came through Isaac. Now watch this. It gets a little deeper than that even. Are you ready? Because here's what he says. Verse 8. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise who are counted as offspring. Did you get that? Quick correction, necessary correction to our Christian culture today. And this might offend some of you. I love you. Please take this with the spirit that it comes in. It is common in our culture today, very common, for someone to say, the Jews are the chosen people of God. You ever hear that? Yes, no, yes. Okay, don't be afraid. You can talk back, okay? I won't hurt you. Okay, people say, the Jews are the chosen people of God. Those are God's chosen people. And I want to say this. Um, Read your New Testament. Read your New Testament. What does it say about Israel? Not all who are descended from Israel are what? Israel. Only those who are heirs according to the promise. Listen, just because this here is of a particular race or nation doesn't make you an heir. You are not a Jew outwardly. You are a Jew inwardly. And listen, believers, understand the blessings of being in Christ. The blessings of being in Christ. It's not like God has his chosen people over here, the Jews, and you also have these sort of redheaded stepchildren over here called the Christians. And they're also his kids, but not really. I mean, it's the Jews. Here's the truth. Israel, the descendants of Abraham, the children through Isaac, that is the the promised blessing. 
And if you're a believer in Christ, you are in that people of God, Israel of God. So watch this. If you trust in Christ today, if you're a believer of the faith of Abraham, if you're an heir according to that promise, shalom. You are inwardly a Jew. You are an heir according to the promise. It's not as though the word of God has failed. Just because you are born physically Jewish didn't make you really Jewish. And Paul took pains to make that clear in Romans chapter 2. For the Jew that boasted in the law, hey baby, look, I got the law. He says, but you got to do the things in the law to be justified by the law. And you don't do it, do you? He says, oh, but I'm, I, look, I, I, I don't do this, I don't do that. He says, you condemn people for what the very same things are that you do. And he says, don't you teach yourself, don't you do this? You who say don't steal, do you steal? And he shows them they violate the law. And then the Jew goes, oh, but wait, 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 wait. I am physically circumcised. Check it out. Abraham's descendant. And look, look, circumcised. Look, I'm, I'm part of that covenant, right? And they're bragging on that. And Paul says, yeah, but through your circumcision, uh, through your breaking the law, you've made your circumcision uncircumcision. Yes, that's a weird thought. Um, but then he goes on to say, hey, but what about this person over here? who, though not physically circumcised, actually does obey the things in the law. Won't his uncircumcision be counted as circumcision because he actually obeys the law and you don't? And what's he showing there? He says this. He says, you're not a Jew outwardly, but a Jew inwardly. And all that was leading up to this moment here in Romans chapter 9 where he's showing, listen, just because you're physically descended from Israel doesn't really make you Israel. What he's teaching here, ready? Are you getting this? Ready is this, a remnant theology that God always had a particular remnant within his people, within the culture, that were always there. And Paul makes it a clear point when he moves on to Romans in chapter 11. He says this in verse 1 of chapter 11, I ask then, has God rejected his people? Because that's the question now being lobbed. Are you saying God's not faithful to his promises? How come these Jews don't accept Jesus? You're saying he's Messiah. What about them? Does he not keep his promises? Paul says this, verse 1, I ask then, has God rejected his people? By no means, for I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people. Are you ready? Here it is. Grab it. Some of us won't like it. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Guys, when does election take place? If you listen to my radio show this week, you heard me say it a bunch of times. Before the foundation of the world. We were responding this week to a rant against Calvinism by a guy named Ed Young Jr. on the radio. It's a funny show. You really should listen to it. Uh, George Bush makes an appearance and a couple other things. It's funny. So you should grab it. Uh, Yeah, Jerry. Jerry does some great impressions. Um, But the, 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 the rant against reform theology was, was coming out. Are you saying you actually know where choice begins and election begins and ends? Are you actually saying you believe that? And he laughed. Jerry called it a creeper laugh <laughs> about it. And the truth is, is, yeah, we know when election begins. The Bible says it. Ephesians chapter 1, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Jesus is a lamb slain before the foundation of the world. Your names are written in a book of life before the foundation of the world. Paul's point in Romans chapter 11 is this. God has not been faithless to his promises. He says this. 
I'm an Israelite of the tribe of Benjamin. He has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. In other words, watch this. It's not based on human will or exertion, but on God who shows mercy. He's saying this. God has always had a remnant. And not all who are descended from Israel are Israel. You have to be a child, an heir according to the promise. Now watch this. Quick thing. Let's test your knowledge here real fast to see if you guys are listening. Romans chapter 4, Paul makes an argument. What's the argument? How is Abraham justified? Was it through law or was it through faith? And what's the verse he quotes? Genesis 15, 6, guys. Ready? Hang on to this. Ready? You should hang on to it because it's stinking awesome. Ready? Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. And if you're a believer, you're an heir according to the promise, because you are of the same faith as Abraham. It's not a faith based on works or your own righteousness or anything you have done, will do, are doing. This is a justification that was through our father Abraham, just like his. He came to God. His hands were empty. His mouth was open. He trusted in other, and God credited to him righteousness. And Paul's argument is this. Hey, listen, if you want to truly be a child of Abraham... You want to be an heir according to that promise? You've got to have the same faith as Abraham. And I have a question for you. Are you ready? When was Abraham justified by faith? Was it before or after circumcision? And the Jew goes, well, it was before circumcision. He goes, right. So he was credited righteousness based on faith before circumcision and also before he offered his son Isaac on the altar. You've got to think about that. And also 400 some odd years before the law was given. So he's like this. Ready? You think you're Jewish? Who's the father of the Jewish race? Who's the one God promised to bring the blessing through? Abraham, is your faith like his? That's the question. Are you trying to attain your own righteousness? Are you basing your righteousness on the law, on what you're doing? Or do you got the same faith as Abraham? And you go, what does it look like? He believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. And so Paul's argument is this. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. God foreknew people and by his grace chose to save and chose to save and it moved all the way through Abraham, Isaac. And then the next argument, ready, is Rebecca. Hang on to this because I'm going to try to get us at least to some firm ground tonight. Are you ready? Verse 9. For this is what the promise said. About this time next year I will return and Sarah shall have a son. There's Isaac. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac. So Isaac has a wife now. Ready? Abraham and Sarah have Isaac, the promised son. And now it moves down to Rebekah and Isaac. And then Rebekah, check it out. She has two sons, twins. And watch. 11. Though they were not yet born... And had done nothing either good or bad. Think hard about that. They were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of Him who calls. She was told, The older will serve the younger, as it is written. Jacob, I have loved, but Esau, I have hated. Before they were born, before they had done good or evil, according to God, 
that his choice, his election might stand. It was said, the older, God says, shall serve the younger. And then it moves into a passage spoken of much later in the scriptures and shows how that actually worked itself out. Jacob, I have loved. Esau, I have hated. And I want to start answering questions because I know what you're thinking. I know what comes to your hearts because it came to mind too. It comes to the mind of every person who reads this text. And, I, and, I, and I'll, I'm willing to bet that I already know what some of you are thinking. It's three words. Three words are in your mind right now, some of you who, who aren't necessarily familiar with the text. Three words are floating around right now in your minds, and it is, ready, that's not fair. Did I get it? That's not fair. Jacob, I have loved Esau, I have hated. So you just chose to love Jacob, to hate Esau, just like that? That's not fair. And what are we forgetting? Every time we say things like that, we're forgetting something very important. Who gets to define the nature of humanity? Us or God? God. And let me ask you a question humbly, humbly, humbly with respect. When God has told us in just this single book of Romans, the nature of humanity, what has he said? Romans chapter 1. Everyone knows God. They suppress the truth about God and unrighteousness. They exchange the glory of the immortal God for something in the form of mortal man. And they worship and serve the creature rather than the creator. Therefore, God gave them over. And then what else does he say? Very clearly in Romans chapter 3, it says this. Are you ready? This is me. This is you. This is every person in the world. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There is none righteous, not even one, none who does good, none who seeks for God. Ready? That's us. All of humanity, Jew and Gentile, is there. Knowers of God and haters of God. What does it say? No one righteous, no one seeks for God. All of sin, Jew and Gentile, fall short of the glory of God. Are you getting the, the, the foundation now, the balance of where we're really at? How about this, Romans chapter 5. What does it say? A couple things. Are you ready? I'll give you some. Not very encouraging, but it helps with the point. Ready? Here we go. It says that we were enemies. So someone says, well, that's not fair. That's not fair. Are you ready? Enemies, ungodly, sinners, helpless. These are words from Romans chapter 5. Haters of God, not righteous, non-God seeking. How about this? In Adam, Romans chapter 5, all who are in Adam die. So spiritually, ready? Dead. Condemnation, transgression. Are you getting the picture? And so ready? Let's get the big picture here. Let's hold it up in front of us. What has God said about the nature of humanity? We're dead. We're fallen. We're sinners. We're not righteous. We're rebels. We're enemies. We're haters of God. And then when you think right now about that context, ready? Here's the big question. When you have somebody who is a rebel in the universe of the king, that hates him, that suppresses him, that exchanges him rather for bootleg worship, false gods and false idols and functional saviors. Says no to God's grace and goodness, even though God showers it on him every single day of their lives. Hates him continually to his face. Is spiritually dead and alienated. Ask the question, ready? What is a good God supposed to do with that? And here's the answer. Are you ready? Here's the answer. 
everybody always comes to this text and they say, Jacob, I have loved, Esau, I have hated. And they go, that's not fair. That's not fair. And I want to say to this question about the fairness of God here. Isn't the real significant part of the passage this, Jacob, I have loved? Don't we always leap to the Esau I have hated? Hey, that's not fair. He hated Esau. But if you understand the background of the book of Romans, isn't the question a rather different one? Isn't it really this? Why would you ever love Jacob? Because the truth is, ready? Jacob, Esau, both like you and like me in Adam. Fallen. And the question is this. Why in the world would a king that is so beautiful and so lovely and so perfect, and so holy, and so righteous, and so good, and so limitlessly loving and full of goodness, why would he ever love someone who hates him with their whole being? Because you see, what you do, what you leap to, watch, and we're going to end with this today. When you look at this passage, what you leap onto does display something about what you believe about yourself. And God. Because you see, the person that runs to this passage and says, Hey, that's not fair. Why do hate Esau? They believe something about God and believe something about themselves. They're revealing it. What are they revealing? They're revealing at least this that they don't believe that they're as bad as they really are. And they don't believe that God is as good and as holy as he truly is. Because if you're like me and you know your own heart, and you know your own brokenness, even as a Christian today, you're so keenly aware of your own sin before God, you've got to ask this question on a daily basis. How could you ever love someone like me? When I think about my life and my pattern of life over the last week and the ways that I didn't love God from my heart, soul, mind, and strength and the ways that I didn't cherish God in every moment and the ways that I might have exchanged God for an idol, I ask that question more now than I ever did, and I mean that with all my heart. I ask that question today, and I asked it seriously. How could you ever love someone like me? How could you ever be so committed to someone like me? You know why? Because I'm more aware now as a believer with years in Christ of my own sinfulness and my own brokenness than I ever was before. And I have to ask this fundamental question, how in the world would you love someone like me? Why would you love someone as wicked as I am with my past and my brokenness? Jacob I have loved, Esau I have hated. That's not fair. That's called grace. Because Jacob and Esau both deserve the same thing. Here's fair. Ready? The king and just judge of all the universe, in his fairness, should have sent Jacob, Esau, your mom, your dad, you and me to hell forever. That's fair. What is the majestic part of the gospel is this. Here you sit. That's the majesty of God in the gospel. Let me ask you a question. Because I know there's other questions and we're going to get to them. I'll just ask you this fundamental question. Because I know there's other things circling in your mind. Have you turned from sin to trust in Christ? Yes or no? Are you trusting in Jesus Christ right now as your Savior and as your Lord and as your only hope? 
Do you believe that he died for you, took your condemnation and rose from the dead? Do you believe that? And if you do, let me just share with you this significant thing. Are you ready? Jacob I have loved and Esau I have hated means this. God's love of Jacob was not letting Jacob be what he wanted to be. But what he did with Esau in hating him was this. He let Esau be Esau. So watch. God's love of Jacob is significant because what it means is this. God loved him so much, he wouldn't let him be what he wanted to be. And if you're in this room right now, trusting in Jesus as your Savior and as your Lord, it means that God didn't let you be what you were. How significant is that? It's, it, that's the majesty of the gospel and the sovereignty of God is God's not letting Jeff be Jeff. There's the glory of the gospel. Why would you love me? Because I love you. I foreknew you. I predestined you. I called you. I justified you, glorified you. I won't let you be you. That's the glory of the gospel. It's God picking you up out of dirt and darkness and mud and evil pursuits. And he's saying, I chose to love you. I will not let you be what you want to be. And many of you right now in this room, you have tasted that in the last two years of your life. God reaching into time and saying to you, I won't let you be what you want to be. How significant is that? God, these truths should change our hearts. I don't know how faithful I was, God, in expressing the power of this passage and the beauty of it and of you. But all I ask, God, is that you meet every one of your people in this place, to display to us your goodness and your grace that is undeserved and unmerited, transcends our understanding. You truly are incomprehensible, and your grace is something that I just want to know more of. For those in this room, Lord, that are still broken and lost before you, I pray, even now, God, through your power, you open their eyes. And for those of us, Lord, that you've saved and you've brought out of darkness, that you foreknew, that you've elected and chosen by your grace, that you have chosen not to let us be what we in our hearts would desire to be, I want to thank you. Thank you, Lord, that you won't let me be me. In Jesus' name, amen.